Hello everyone and welcome to Years of Wonder, a father and son's... A son and father's... Wonder Years fan diary. I'm your host, BJ Hollers. And I'm your host, Henry Hollers. <laughs> Did you forget your name there for a second? No. <laughs> I was looking at the script. Okay, we're looking at the script. That's how this magic happens, folks. We got a nice script here. Sometimes we follow it, sometimes not. Um, I usually don't. Usually we do not, but you know, due diligence, due diligence. So now we're on to episode two of season one, written by Neil Marlins and Carol Black. The logline courtesy of IMDb is, even at Brian's funeral, all Kevin can think about is Winnie. The much anticipated sex education begins at school, but it doesn't give them enough information. The boys want to learn more, so they steal a book. All right, Henry, without making this too terribly awkward, what's this episode all about? Can you kind of walk us through some things that stood out to you? Um, it was still really weird. I'm always thinking about Brian Cooper after he's dead. I'm thinking, what would he be like if he's if he was still alive in the show? Yeah, it's cool because we only see him for a very limited amount of time. I'm not even sure if he ever comes back in ghost form that first episode we see him for what maybe a total of 30 seconds a minute and yet throughout the whole series we're always thinking about brian cooper yeah why do you think that is because he's what made he just always looks up to that guy yeah and it's kind of cool to think how even when we don't see him directly it's a part of winnie's life that character's life right yeah yeah so tell us about how the how the episode opens um so it's they're in a big graveyard kevin and his family but you don't see them yet but then it zooms in right where you see them like talking about like the leader of the funeral is talking then you, then they're at the house, and the mom's like, let me put some ice cubes in it. Give me five minutes. So they're about to go to um, the wake at the Cooper house, right? And so they're trying to bring some food over, and they've got some gelatin that's not um, fully ready to go, and they've got some cold ham, and the mom's really trying, Norma's really trying to get it ready. Okay, so um, we get to the Cooper house, and there's a great line Kevin has right before. Uh, he says, his voiceover says, life's two greatest forces, love and death, were tearing me apart. Because yeah. he can't stop thinking about Winnie, right? Yeah. But at the same time, Winnie can't stop thinking about her brother. And so here Kevin is, you know, 12 and a half years old, in love with Winnie, um, and trying to give her some food, trying to be a comfort, but also kind of having a big crush on her at the same time. Yeah. How is that a little weird? Because, I don't is really weird because maybe if kevin really wanted to be a good friend he'd think about winnie and what she was going through right then yeah not yeah. just himself loving her exactly exactly it's fine to, to love someone but uh, if you love someone you know thinking about how they're feeling about things too mm -hmm. so uh then we see brian cooper's ghost right mm -hmm. tell us about that moment so then the voiceover says so first brian cooper talks the ghost but Winnie doesn't hear it, of course, because it's just like Kevin's imagination. Right. And so what's the rest of the episode about? Do you remember anything else? The, the sex part. Okay. Well, we don't need to talk about that right now. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, there's a book they steal. They're very curious about. No, they pay twenty dollars. Yeah, well, they don't steal the book exactly. They leave some money on the counter and they run. Yep. So there's that. Um, but to avoid a lot of that, what are you gonna say? What are you gonna say? The mom. What about the mom? Okay, so then the mom opens the door and is like, "Why is this book here? Why were you in my drawers?" And then Kevin opens his mouth, like, drops. Mm-hmm. After the mom leaves the room, he's like, "What? <laughs> how did? How? Why would my mom have one of these?" Right. So it was, a, it was a book with a lot of information in it, and Kevin and Paul got one from the bookstore, hoping no one would ever find it. But then Norma, Kevin's mom, saw it and was more upset because she thought that Kevin had gotten it from her dresser drawer and didn't even realize that he bought his own copy. Yeah. So he didn't get as much in trouble. If he bought his own copy, he would be in big trouble if they they found out. There were a couple problems with having that book. One was that it wasn't really age appropriate for him at that time. Yeah. Um, But you're... About half the age of Kevin, and here we are talking about it. So I don't know what that says, but um, so the episode ends with kind of a beautiful moment, right? When, no, I'm seven. Well, okay. He's twelve. Well, pretty close. Pretty close. He's twelve and a half. So the episode ends when they're at the park, right? Yeah. And and what happens at the park? Do they kiss again? No. What do they do? So um, when he asked, "Do you want to swing?" <laughs> and then the voiceover is starts talking and then that's the end of the episode yeah and it's perhaps the most poignant part the voiceover says maybe we both realize that growing up doesn't have to be so much a straight line as a series of advances and retreats maybe we just felt like swinging but whatever it was winnie and i made an unspoken pact that day to stay kids for a little while longer do you know what do you know why the name was called swingers why it was called what swingers because they're on the swings yeah yeah, yep, that is the only meaning for that title. Yes. Um, so, um, that's a pretty cool shot though, right? You see them just being kids again. Yeah. In the end of the first episode, remember what happened in Harper's Woods? Yeah. They kissed. Right, and so that makes it seem like they were more grown-ups. But the second episode, the episode ends with them just playing on the swing sets, right? <laughs> yeah. And that's really and, neat. Oh, and the voiceover also says, and that's how... And that's as far as me and Winnie went that day. Yep. And that's cool, right? Yeah. It was just he took Brian Cooper's ghost's advice and just was there for her to support her. And that was pretty neat. Yeah. So kind of a, a large part of this episode is kind of witnessing Winnie's grief for her brother. Um, and so since part of this podcast is really to try to take real lessons and real stories in addition to um, the stories we learn about in the show, uh, Earlier today, Henry and I had the opportunity to talk to our friend Jim Merrill, whose brother, David Merrill, uh, passed away um, while fighting in Vietnam himself. So um, we're going to go ahead and play the interview and um, see if, if kind of uh, there's any kind of connection between the real-life difficulties uh, that have been experienced during this war and the, the fictional portrayal we've seen with Winnie and the loss of her brother. Hey, Jim, how are you? I'm doing well. How about you? I'm good. Gosh, it's so nice to hear your voice. Same here. Hi. Hi, Henry. How are you? Good. You know, it's interesting. Um, I loved watching the Wonder Years uh, when when our kids were growing up, and I remember 
Um, if, if I recall, wasn't it Winnie's brother who was who was killed? Yep. Okay, I remember that. I um, so yeah, that was a that was a great show. Yeah. So um, my brother's name was David, and um, David was six years older than I. Um, and and so he was. Um, he had enlisted um, in in the army. He knew he was going to be drafted after he'd gotten out of college. He was married, um, and so he he went ahead and enlisted, and then went to officer candidate school and became a a second lieutenant. And uh, he he was. Um, during after he went through basic training and officer candidate school and and that sort of thing, he uh, he was assigned to the armored division. And and while in the armored division, he actually became a long range uh, reconnaissance patrol leader. And so that was not a good job to have in Vietnam. Uh, because their role was actually to, you know, to seek out the enemy, and um, and then you know, really to kind of rely on um, other companies, the infantry, to really uh, do the do the fighting. Um, but uh, on on the day of, of his death, which was October twenty fifth, nineteen sixty eight. Uh, he was. Uh, he and his platoon were asked to actually move forward and engage uh, engage the enemy. Um, and they really, as as I understand it from um, some of the history that I've read uh, from some of his platoon leader uh, members and and others that. Um, the platoon, uh, uh, reconnaissance platoons really weren't equipped to engage, uh, and they really hadn't been trained well to engage the enemy in infantry battles. What was he like as a boy? What was he like as a boy? Mm-hmm. Well, he was very athletic, and he was, he was one of these boys who, uh, he played all the sports, um, he played on the, uh, you know, he played little league baseball and pony league and colt league baseball. He played, um, he played football his first couple of years of high school, and he and then he switched over to cross country because his real his real talent was uh, track, and he was very talented. And in fact. He, his mile relay team, uh, where each of the members of the mile relay team runs a 440-yard dash, they set a record uh, in Illinois State at something called, I think it was, it was maybe the Naperville Relays. And they, they set a record that stood for many, many years as the, uh, as the state mile relay record. And 
Yeah, so he was he was very talented um, athletically. He was a really handsome kid, and uh, um, and um, handsome teenager. Uh, one of the things that's you know kind of a, an interesting story, uh, Henry. I'll tell. You, what, what grade are you in, Henry? I'm in first grade. You're in first grade. Uh-huh. Well, I'll tell you. A, I'll tell you a funny story about my brother David when he was in kindergarten. The very first day of kindergarten, the teacher asked the students to stand up next to their desk and, you know, state their name, and she and then to sit down, and and so everybody in the class did that, and then she asked the students to stand up again and then to sit down and then she asked them to stand up again and everybody in the class stood up but but my brother sat in his chair the teacher said david is everything okay why didn't you stand up and he said because i already know how to do it now now here's the funny ending to that story um so he was five years old about 18 years later, he married the kindergarten teacher's daughter. He was a particularly handsome guy that all of the girls in school used to swoon over. Um, We have a a sister who was two years younger than David and is four years older than I by the name of Linda. And, And so Linda was you know, even closer um, in age, and um, I think double dated on a few occasions with with David, um, and um, and all of her friends used to, um, you know, used to swoon over David. So um, that's those are a couple of stories. Um, trying to think what else I, I, I know um, um, I, I remember once when he was a when he was young I was uh, I mean I think he was like 10 years old um, and we we went to uh, we were going to his baseball practice and so he was 10 and I was like four years old at the time but I remember it because he was we went out to the baseball park and, and he he jumped over the fence and as he jumped over the fence somebody hit a a ball that caught him right right between the eyes. But he brushed it off. It didn't it didn't affect him much. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I will also tell you a story when when I was about three and he was nine, he was playing in the backyard playing baseball with friends in the backyard, and I, I didn't know what was going on, but I walked in front of him as he was swinging the bat, and he knocked me out. I grew up liking him and loving him anyway. So, so this is an interesting um, thing. I think it, it, he was 24 years. He was 24 years old, um, and so it was October of 1968. I was a freshman at Tulane University, and um, you know, just kind of to 
give you some perspective. Two months earlier, I had I had been kicked out of my girlfriend's home by her drunken father during the Chicago Democratic Convention because I was um, I was really protesting the war and protesting the treatment uh, by the Chicago police of the protesters and. Um, and my girlfriend's father took issue with that and, um, and asked me to leave the house. Um, and it, it took some time to, to reconcile that <laughs> with his, his screaming daughter and wife at the time because they were, they were taking my side. And, um, and so that, and then two months before that, um, I had actually given the commencement address at my high school graduation, and it was the night after Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. And and so, you know, it was a real. 1968 was such a pivotal time, I think, in my life, um, and it was a very pivotal time in our country's history, and. And, you know, just to kind of close the loop on that, um, my brother was buried on election day of uh, 1968 when, uh, when Nixon defeated Humphrey. So it was all very, you know, kind of cathartic, I suppose. I, do, I don't recall a whole lot of the speech. Um, I do remember that I, I opened the speech with um, with Dustin Hoffman's line from The Graduate, uh, and I, I started it with by saying, you know, something like, you know, members of the school board, members of the faculty, fellow students, parents, and guests, I'm worried about my future, <laughs> and um, and then during the, I mean, it, it was. Um, Probably a fairly radical speech, um, you know, because I was I was stating concern as a you know as a new high school graduate, um, stating concern about everything that was happening, you know, with the assassinations of Martin Luther King and and Robert Kennedy and. Um, you know, the anti-war movement was really just getting underway. Um, and so it was, uh, it was a very difficult time and, and one of, of personal conflict you know, because, um, you know, we certainly supported my brother uh, and, and wanted him to do well. Um, and yet we were very concerned about going to war. My father was a, um, a family uh, physician um, and was a draft board doctor. And, uh, you know, I, I, I believe that if he had tried to, he could have influenced um, whether, whether my brother, you know, was eligible for the army or not. And he didn't. 
he he was um, of, of course my brother's death just um, you know really uh, my my parents' hearts were broken by it and yes I believe he did have regrets um, and and my parents who had been kind of lifelong Republicans. Um, I don't think ever ever voted for a Republican again. Did you have any lessons from your brother? I'm sorry, Henry, I didn't understand. Do I have any what? Lessons. Any lessons? Um, wow, that's a great question, Henry. Um, I, I think... I think the lessons that I learned from my brother were um, were to be kind to people and animals, um, and you know to stand up for what you believe in. Because um, I, I will tell you that he he believed in what he was fighting for, at least when he went over. To Vietnam, he believed in what he was fighting for. So, I think those are a couple of lessons that I learned from him. What was his favorite food? His favorite food was filet mignon. So, interestingly, my my birthday is August twelfth, and my brother's birthday was August thirteenth. And so, I always wanted to have a T-bone steak for my birthday, and he wanted to have a filet mignon. I, uh, I got a call from my father on uh, the Sunday night following my brother's death. Um, and so I, you know, my, my father said, well, you know, just stay put in college. Uh, we'll, you know, we'll follow up and let you know what's going on um, about school arrangements. And so I hung up the phone that night thinking, yeah, I'll do that. And then I called him back and I said, I can't stay here. Um, so I flew home the next day. And then, and then we had, um, and my sister, who had just graduated from Northwestern uh, was living out in California. So, so she flew home. I flew home. We were all together for about uh, for about ten days, and it you know it took about a week for for my brother's body to uh, be returned to to come back home. And um, so he did have a. He had a military escort um, all the way from from Vietnam, um, and who happened to be one of his one of his best friends. Um, and I met the I met them at the train station in Carbondale with the um, with the hearst from the from the funeral home. And um, so, uh, you know, the, the 
body was taken to the funeral home. Uh, I never, uh, and nor, nor did anyone else from my family ever actually um, identify the, the body. I mean, we knew it. Everybody knew it was he. I mean, he had dog tags and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, so then, then he was, as I mentioned, he was he was buried on election day, and like the next day, I flew back to uh, Tulane, flew back to New Orleans, and um, my, you know, my my professors, I think, had been notified. A couple of my professors just, you know, kind of acknowledged, oh, yes, okay, well, you'll have this work to make up. And, um, and yet I remember, I remember both my, my French and, um, English professors, um, were very compassionate and kind and, you know, wanted to know, you know, was there anything they could do, you know, blah, it was, they were, um, they were very understanding. Um, and so it was, it was a very difficult, for me, it was a very difficult re-entry. Um, but, but I, I was in a fraternity, um, and the, the people in the fraternity and and my roommate and sweet mates, you know, they were all very supportive. Um, but it was it, it was it still felt very lonely. I felt, um, you know, this was something I just had to had to deal with on my own. And and we had a we had a a, a tradition at our fraternity house. At least some of us did. I mean, every night after uh, after dinner, which was served at like five o'clock, we would go down to we would leave the um, dining room and go into uh, this TV room and watch Walter Cronkite. So every night I'd be down there watching the news with my fraternity brothers and Walter Cronkite. Telling, telling us how many, how many Viet Cong, how many North Vietnamese Army, how many American casualties there were, and and it was just uncomfortable. You know, it was it it was it was very sad. 